Well, when I became a cop, it was, um, it was, it was, it was like a, a calling. It was a profession. It was a duty, and the motivation for most of us. And I hung around with some pretty cool guys. I only knew one guy when I got out of the police department, uh, uh, Bill Piazzik. I was the only one of 35 that I knew the first day of class. And over the next number of months, you knew them all. And then you finally had your group of like eight or 10 of us that hung together. Weddings, funerals, uh, uh, baptisms of kids, the whole thing, just like you see in a movie. It was like a very select club. There were others that were others in, say, in my class, and then other cops that you met from that had been on a year or two longer, and, and this and that. A number of my friends over time had become chiefs of police of different police departments, as and as when they retired. I mean, I hung around with a lot of pretty. Pretty good guys that that stayed in the profession and, like I say, became somewhat politically astute and became chiefs in other towns. But my motivation and most of the guys I was with were we wanted action and we wanted to help people who needed to be helped, whether it be a little old couple from the Bronx who was on Whaley Avenue in New Haven and couldn't find the highway at two o'clock in the morning because they went to a play at Yale. And you look at them and you go, wow, that's like my grandmother, grandfather, my uncle. I'm not gonna give you directions, Mr. and Mrs. whatever your name is. I'm gonna bleed you three miles through the city, four different turns with my light on and I'm gonna bring you to the highway. And that makes you feel like so great. And the other half of the job was to catch the friggin' scumbags that were brutalizing people and hurting people and putting the bad people away because we were the biggest, the baddest, and the strongest. We were the youngest. We were the smartest. And we almost knew the streets as well as the bad guys. Some of the bad guys knew the streets better than us, the backyards and this and that. But those, those, are, the, those are the reasons most of us became cops, not for any other reason. Now, in my class of 35, there was two in particular, two, maybe three, who their initial motivation was politics from the very beginning, from day one. We, I didn't know them, but I got to know them. We all got to know them pretty. We, we, we had them tagged pretty well. Their whole thing was they knew the chief and they knew the politicians. And lo and behold, they became sergeants, lieutenants, and got the best jobs in the police department right away. Another, an awakening, an awakening of what humanity is all about. There's always going to be certain people like that. But, Nowadays, so that was my motivation and most cops' motivation, in my opinion, back in the 70s, maybe 80s, maybe 90s, whatever. What's happened now, a little prior to George Floyd, but George Floyd, you know, precisely, changed the whole world. No proactive policing anymore, almost whatsoever. You, the whole object is to finish your shift safely and get paid without going near a human being. Imagine that, you're a police officer. The less um, contact you have with a human being 
from giving directions to giving a p- parking ticket to God forbid having to arrest somebody to chasing somebody to you know I mean all those things can only get you in trouble now everyone's got a camera everyone's got um, a video the police officers are now walking cameras with their friggin' sad how sad it is walking around with cameras taped to your friggin' chest audio and video that your whole friggin' life uh, you could stop a crime back in the old days get you you could save two kids from getting arrested back in the old days by walking up to them on the corner and saying get the fuck off the corner i'm gonna split your fucking head open your mother's gonna know about it and i know your father is gonna kick your ass after they stitch you up and that kid goes home and at the end you can't say that anymore you have to wait till the kid commits a crime and even then your response time is so low you hope that he's not there when he's climbing out the window because you get there so slow but you can't say those things or do those things anymore. Why? Well, it's offensive. But two, you have a friggin' camera on you. I was like, I, I, now the part that gets me is the common sense. Police officer, police officers are just people. But most of the ones that I learned to meet and found out about them, what they were like when they were younger. Because remember, I said I only knew one of them, and I know what he was like. The guys who were the best cops, if I had to grade them, were the ones who were the biggest scooches and probably got in the most trouble as they grew up. They got in the most trouble with the police. They got in the most trouble with their parents. They got in the most trouble with their friends. But they turned out to be the best cops in the world. Why? Because they know how a bad guy thinks, and they became a good guy. And they became good at catching bad guys. And they became good at convincing bad guys to become good guys. And those were the best ones. Nowadays, anybody who cries out for a police department, first of all, they can't recruit. They can't even get. I said there was 35 in my class and 600 applicants. I don't think they can get 30 applicants anymore in a, in a big police department because the only person that you're going to want that's going to want to do this job now is someone who's not going to want to chase bad guys and get himself in trouble. So what is he? why does he want to become a cop? Because he likes uniforms And he wants to walk around with a badge when he's off duty and tell people, I'm cool, I'm a cop. Okay, because any cop who's a cop knows that he's got to get in confrontations to help people and do things. And then you're going to get sued and lose your job. And your city isn't going to back you up. So why would you want to become cop? So those guys are all going, they're leaving their police departments in urban cities. And they're going to places like Long Island, New York, and, and, and other uh, shall we say, um, jurisdictions in various states that accept and support their police officers. But there's only so many that can go. So, so many of them have quit. The last numbers I saw, which was about three months ago for New York City, there were 1,700 retirees uh, uh, leaving. Um, this was probably July or August, okay, so a little over half a year. And of those 16 or 1,700 that were leaving, there was like 700 of them didn't even have vested pensions. They were just leaving to leave, to no longer be yeah. a cop. In a 35,000-man police department that was is known to be supposedly the best on the planet, and you're going to leave that? 
Yeah, well, that, well, that, some well, idea. Who's going to want to join it? Well, th- well, that's what recruit. That's what that recruiter I heard talking about. He said that most of the guys that are good at it and want to do it as a profession, right. they end up going out and being a private contractor or, or running a security company where they can make three times the amount of money with less stress. The the ones who become cops now are complete and total losers right. who want the power, like you said, to be able right. to flash their badge, right. and or they're a psychopath that's just looking to go out and shoot somebody. Yeah, because there's no other reason that you'd want to be, or they're a political hack, and a the, bureaucrat, a friend of a friend, and right, that's about and, it. Right, and they've already been promised that we can make you a lieutenant within, uh, you know, eight months because we're short men, it's, et cetera, et cetera. We're short of staff, so we can elevate you because your father is the, uh, you know, the mayor's driver or something like that. Yes, that's exactly what's going on. And and and, and think about this. I, I look at it this way with police officers. Think of it with firemen. Think Think of this. You have a fire department. Um, I'll just say one thing in the very beginning. We, you talked about Rudy's, and uh, so I never knew anything about firemen, okay? And I thought some firemen were wussies and cops were big, brave guys, okay? So at, at Rudy's was a place for me to start learning about firemen uh, because firemen and, and, and uh, police officers shared the, the same bar, and uh, so we got to know each other. But... And so there was always this kind of camaraderie going back and forth. But until I became a cop and did crowd control for my very first big fire, did I gain the unbelievable utmost respect I ever had for a public servant. And I mean servant. It was a nighttime fire at a grocery store on Congress Avenue, my beat, the black section of New Haven, the ghetto, as some people would call it. Heroin was big at the time and this and that. And all these Section 8 uh, welfare people would shop at this one grocery store uh, in their neighborhood because they could walk there, you know, and um, it was their place. And lo and behold, a big giant fire. I don't know, 9, 10 o'clock at night in the summer, hot and humid, and I'm doing crowd control along with, you know, maybe six, seven, eight, ten other police cars and watching these firemen. They're in the complete total darkness, two stories up, walking around on a burning roof, not knowing where the frig they're going and when the roof is going to collapse. Every once in a while, one of them will come down off a ladder, hardly able to breathe, covered in friggin' soot. Sweat pouring off their face, sitting on a friggin' pavement by your feet because you're holding a crowd back and everything. So these guys are like, you're like really working shoulder to shoulder with them, but you're breathing, you're cool, your uniform is clean. These guys are like working like coal miners, like animals. I said, I, I'm saying to myself, holy shit, you guys signed up to do this kind of work like all the time. That's what turned them on. That That was their thing. So once I saw that, and then I'd seen many others, and we had a couple of deaths where firemen fell through roofs and died. Uh, I said to myself, man, you guys are unbelievable. So they live together in a firehouse. Police officers don't. They cook together. They bathe and shower together. And all of them almost all have a second job. They're either contractors, plumbers. Uh, they do sh- plowing. They all have a- another job because the way their shift works, they have like three or four days off at a time. So they do. They they're they're really industrious, uh, cool people. But the the thing is, they 
they uh, when they have their exams, their exams for supervisory positions, the way that their trucks and engine companies work is that the boss has got to know a shit how to fight a fire. Not necessarily how to climb a ladder and this and that, which is part of it, but what chemical, at what direction, at what wind speed, from what angle, at what time, what heat. Now, when they started lowering the standards and playing this game in New Haven with affirmative action because there were not enough black um, enough blacks winning supervisory positions in these firehouses, and they kept lowering and lowering and lowering the standard. Who, who would want a firefighter? Your house is on fire, your building, your business, your whole life savings. Uh, running a truck, um, commanding two or three or four or five or six other fires to save property and lives, who doesn't have a friggin' clue what chemical, what fire, what, what gauge of hose, what this and that, all because he's black or because he's Puerto Rican or because he's Jewish. Who, 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 would, want, who would want that? Yet the nonsensical bureaucracy and political crap that goes on in these quote-unquote public service jobs and promotions is so criminally wrong and insane and, and dangerous that people like this are promoted because that's the game they play, and yet they don't consider the lives that are going to be lost, including firemen's lives, including other brother firemen, because you have a boss. The boss I had, Listro, you know, as far as I was concerned, I told him to go fuck himself, and I turned him in. But imagine being a fireman at a fire and having the wrong boss there, and the fire's blazing, and you're up on the roof. Yet they do this all the time. It's like this is the world that we live in um, with incompetent, corrupt uh, people. And once you introduce uh, affirmative action and all this other nonsense that's going on today with the 10 different versions of a human being, you know, I, I mean, we're ruining ourselves as a, as a society. Well, right? that's all done. There's no, That's just going to keep progressing and progressing because it's all part of the plan. That comes out of the world powers. But no, so what What ended up happening with the um, when you when you went to battle with the City of New Haven in federal court. Did you end up beating City Hall, or yeah. do you consider it a loss? Yeah. No, no, no. It, it, it turned out that um, Judge Ellen Burns uh, from the uh, federal court in uh, New Haven ruled in summary judgment, that means without not, not having to try the case, with her reading all of the briefs and then having the city have to ultimately acknowledge that each and every one of my tape, recorders, uh, tape recordings was accurate, that... It was a prima facie proof of the fact that the city of New Haven uh, informally, I mean, uh, improperly and unconstitutionally discharged me and terminated me, and therefore they would have to pay me money, back pay, and uh, offer uh, me uh, my job back. But at that time, uh, I had already been um, a private investigator for about five years. I had built up, built up, a clientele and kind of really liked the job. And I said, you know, I already knew winning was to prove that I was right and to get some money back. Okay, so I did that. Going back would 
would now that I knowing how the system works, would I would have voluntarily put myself in a situation where I was re-entering a place where you knew that they were going to want to get me again anyway. I was a little too smart for that. Yeah. So it, it, it was to a certain extent a blessing in my you know life experience to have encountered that love. Yeah, but 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 the, but the other good thing is coincidentally what I do and and what I did, uh, especially right after. Uh, I left the police department was I knew every cop on the job. I knew 435 cops on the job in New Haven and probably another two or 300 in surrounding towns from all the different meetings and other people that I knew. So I worked as a private investigator for a long, long time, knowing almost every single um, uh, police officer. And it helped me a real lot because in the beginning I did a lot of um, criminal stuff of which I don't do uh, any now. And I did a lot of divorce uh, divorces back in those days um, following someone and catching them doing bad and naughty and disgusting things while they were married had a value to it in a, in a, in a family court. Today it's almost irrelevant. Um, society has changed but knowing police officers where to go how to go how i can get in and out of places where you don't really normal person doesn't belong and even with some of the criminal cases um uh you know defending some of these criminal people but being able to talk to the cops that helped a lot so that was like a great you know entryway into my career into what i do well, you were talking about divorces there, and since uh, you were just hanging out with your ex-wife, my mother, there's a crazy story about when you guys, where the heck, did you go to, was it Maine or New Hampshire, when uh, you guys posed as undercover uh, did, documentarians? Yeah, we did a bunch of, yeah, we did, I, you know, the coolest part was, when I met, when I met your mother, I was a cop. And she was a manager of a movie theater in New Haven. And she was going to college to get her degree in video. So those hearings that I referred to with me getting fired and this and that, your mom brought her whole crew in and videotaped it. And back in those days, video wasn't like it was today. Video was tw reels reels round circular reels with 20 minutes worth of friggin tape on them you know what i'm saying like it was a big thing so uh, having gotten to know your mom and knowing what she did and this and that there were certain jobs in which i could work with her uh after we got married and one of the lawyers i worked for in particular max brunswick what a crazy guy poor man is dead but he would get me these assignments that would involve almost like Mission Impossible, one of which he sent me to California for uh, 10 days to uh, rescue a four-year-old girl out of a trailer park. Now, that's a whole story in itself. But one of the ones with your mom was um, a situation where the... What we were trying to accomplish was the client was, Max's client was a man. He had five children with this woman. They got divorced. 
she moved up to i think it was new hampshire um she had and, been, and max is the one who ran that he had max like divorced men's, yeah men's society men's association yeah, right. divorce men's association he started that yes and he used to represent a lot of men and back at that time what was called joint custody in child in, in divorce cases was almost unheard of women would always get the and Max thought that that was wrong. And Max started a whole association and represented many, many men. And many of them he got joint custody of, which was almost unheard of in a, in a liberal state like Connecticut, you know. But so this particular one was one of those types of cases. And uh, the assignment was that this woman left Connecticut with the, with the five kids no no wait 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 no this woman had like three kids and one of which was a baby okay the five kids is another one okay this this one she she had like three kids one of them was a baby and uh, she moved up and she uh lived like on a farm and she called herself like an earth mom earth mom okay so she was into like uh you know farm grown stuff organic you know all this stuff and everything and our guy, the client, he was learning thing, and and she was going to homeschool. Now, mind you, homeschooling now is cool. Everybody wants to do it. But back in those days, homeschooling was like a super no-no. Like, okay, so it was almost like a, almost against the law. Well, our guy, the dad, he found out that she was going to be homeschooling his children against the judge's court ruling when he allowed her to go there that the kids would have to enroll in school so our assignment my assignment from max was to see if i could infiltrate her interview her and have her acknowledge that she's not sending the kids to school because you don't get a lot of information from the schools across state back then and um and uh, and and also that they were living in a, in a dangerous environment because he had heard that their house, this farmhouse he lived in, almost burned down. They said, "Holy Christ! How the frig are we going to do that?" You know, all of these assignments were like really cool. So it turned out that that particular winter was going to be like a, a predicted to be extremely cold, wintry winter with a lot of snow, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, came up with this pretext that I was gonna go up there as a video documentarian with your mother, and we were going to do a video, uh, we were gonna do um, a report on how people are preparing for the coldest winter in New England. And that would allow us to start talking to people and eventually, hopefully, working our way into this lady's home. Yeah. Well, we learned from the dad that the center of town, this was a small rural town, the center of town was this general store, heart, you know, old wooden plank floors, and they sold everything from shovels to food to everything. And that's where anybody and everyone in the community would go. And the lady who ran it, would he gave us her name and what kind of person she was she was like an earth mom too like a hippie lady and all uh. that stuff so we have all this information so i had business cards printed up 
And we used your aunt Elaine's, uh, it was either either Elaine or Beth's phone number, they were all in on the plan, that that was going to be our studio location. We were going to say that we were from New York, so if anyone got our business cards and they called and asked for Ingrid or Lou, that they they would have the bullshit story. And the first place that we were going to go when we went up there was we were going to go to the mayor's office, to the mayor's office, and introduce ourselves. Okay, so there was a small town, so it was like the first selectman or the mayor or whatever. Sure enough, it's a wintry weekend, and mom and I go up there. She rents this camera equipment. It looks like something like CBS friggin' news. The cameras are like this big on the back seat of the friggin' <laughs> car. She's got like a box with 15 reels of this tape and everything. I mean, we're like real professionals. We have the business cars and everything. <laughs> so we have our hotel room booked, and we go to the um, we go to the town hall, and it's a Friday. And it's just about closing. It's like three o'clock. It's getting dark. It's dark at three o'clock, like, you know, um, in, in the wintertime or whatever. And lo and behold, we happen to catch the friggin' guy that's first selectman. And he's in his office. And, uh, you know, because it's a small town, there's like one secretary, one office. Uh, but we go in, we introduce ourselves, we give him the bullshit story, what we're doing. Oh, uh, uh, and, 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 uh, and uh, you know, we're doing a documentary on the coldest winter in New England and how different towns are preparing and and this and that and all that stuff could you give us the names of a few people that we can talk to he says oh you definitely got to go to the general store so now we got our in for the general store oh you definitely got to go to talk to the uh principal over at the high school on this and that so we leave him immediately we go over the principal okay then we get the first electman's business card and then we go to the high school now it's like four o'clock sure as shit the principal's there in the office we go and give him the bullshit all the 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 the, uh, mayor just (laughs) sent us over here to see you. What are you? Oh, we're going to be buying 10,000 gallons of oil, you know, and uh, we're getting ready. Uh, we have backup uh, heat and all this shit. Okay, so, so now we're all set. So now we go back. We go, wow, wow, wow. So we have a couple of drinks and this and that. We go to bed. We get up the next morning, Saturday morning. It's friggin' snowing, light snow coming down. We take all the equipment, the tripod and the cameras and everything. We go to the general store. We walk in the general store. Sure enough, there's people in there. They're buying salt. They're buying their shovels and, you know, all this stuff. We walk up to the lady. We go, geez, you know, we give her a whole spiel. We give her our card. We tell them we talk to the mayor. We talk to the principal. Do you mind if we set up our cameras in the store? and talk to people as they come in she goes oh no that would be great so we play that game for about ingrid's behind the camera i'm the guy like you with the friggin' microphone <laughs> i'm walking up to people and i'm giving them this bullshit what are you going to do the winter and they're all excited oh there's a big camera crew up here and this and that you know these are the kind of like hillbilly people nice people but i mean it's like wow this is a big deal nobody ever did this before so we get bored we well we we had to set this up. So we do it for about an hour. We interview about wasting tape of, of, about maybe three or four people. So we take a break. And this was the key. This was the whole thing. The whole case was to get this lady behind the counter that owned the store to introduce us to this woman who lived out, in the, out on a farm three miles, four miles out of town. But we would need an introduction. So I go up to the lady and go, wow, this is very interesting and this and that. We'd really like to, like, um, 
no, we got a little of this, we got a little of that, we got the uh, town manager, the you know, the uh, mayor, we got the principal. How about, like, is there anybody, like, a, like on the outskirts of town, like a farm, or like maybe a single woman or somebody that's probably got a lot of pressure, you know, like maybe if we got a big storm, she goes, you know, there is. I said, oh, really? She goes, yeah, whatever this lady's name was. She goes, Joan so-and-so. She's got like three kids. Matter of fact, she almost had a, they had a fire there a while ago. And uh, she's, I said, oh, where does she live? He, that was a net, she said the address. We knew it was confirmed. So he said, um, oh, really? Do you think that she would talk to us if we went out there? He goes, let me give her a call. Phone rings three times. He says, Joan, yeah, I got a camera crew here. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Hangs up. He says, oh, they're doing a, a barn raising at her house right now. She has a bunch <laughs> of men over there, but you could go up. Now it's snowing pretty good. Mom and I go over there. Sure as shit. There's a lady out there. She's got one a little baby in a papoose, like like one of them things wrapped around her body, you know. Yeah. She, and then the two boys are running around. There's about six guys there, pickup trucks, and they're putting a new roof on the barn. Snow's coming down. We get the bullshit with her. We goes. This goes on for like three hours. By now, it's like maybe three in the afternoon, two three in the afternoon. She says, "You want to come? Do you want to stay for dinner? You're such nice people." Ah, we gotta go. We have a lot of things to do. Come, stay for dinner. Your mother's looking at me. She's going like this. She's rolling her eyes. Your mother. She's rolling her eyes. She's going, holy shit! I can't believe this. Well, next thing you know, we're in the house. We got the camera. We're eating dinner with her. She's got the fireplace lit. She's milking her baby. Okay, your mother's got the tape rolling, and we start talking. And she starts telling us all this stuff. I she's divorced, and I said, oh, oh, I said, oh, do you drink wine? So I go into town. I get these two big bottles of wine. So because we figured the more she's drinking the more she's talking we go for about maybe two three hours she tells us the whole story how the house almost burned down she didn't have a fire extinguisher how she says frig the judge frig that judge in connecticut i'm homeschooling my kids i'm not sending them to school all this stuff like she told we get in the car by this time now there's about a foot of snow on the ground it's 11 o'clock. Your mom and I have helped this lady drink two big bottles of friggin' wine. Okay, so, you know, we got a little bit of wine in us. We got to drive to a hotel a few miles away, and your mother starts punching me. <laughs> crying. I said, we're in the driveway, in this lady's driveway, this farm. We had this long dirt driveway. We had to get out of the place. I said, what are you doing? She goes, how could you do that? How could you do that? I said, do what? I said, do what? Do what? He said, how can you get her in trouble like that? I said, she told us everything that just happened. You know, she told us like her whole life story. I said, she's not supposed to be doing this. She's lying to the court. I said, we're working for the man. It's the truth. We're not, it's not like we're setting her up or anything. She said it openly. I said, and not only that, Ingrid, it was you that got her to talk. I said, you were the one that was asking her all the questions. He goes, I know, I know, but I didn't, I know, but I didn't. I said, get in the friggin' car, we're out of here. <laughs> and then I was like, well, then what was it? A couple years later, you walked into the courtroom during the trial and she saw you? Oh, no, that's a different one. Oh, that's it. That's the one where your uh, great uncle Elliot was banging the lady we were watching. <laughs>